to this month's Archimedes, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where clinicians get evidence-based questions, arrange them in a PICO format, go away and search the literature to find the best possible answers to that, bring them back, appraise that, and then synthesise that information in a way that we can use in clinical practice. This month we've got two Archimedes questions and a critical appraisal comment. The first of the questions comes from Lynn Sinitsky and Ashley Rees, working at Barnet and Watford Hospitals in London in the UK respectively. They ask from the situation of talking to a nurse on the ward, a student who's been in a number of different hospitals and comes back saying, this pew system, this is different than the one we used at the other hospital. Why don't you have the same one? And do they really work anyway? And this gets people wondering about how effective are pews and why don't we use the same one in the different hospitals across the UK and more internationally? Well, the team went away and they looked at the Medline and Cochrane databases from 1950 to the present day using a wide variety of searches and came back eventually finding a systematic review and then seven papers that had followed subsequent to that. They took those and they've analysed them to look at both the diagnostic accuracy of pews, that is, using one of these early warning scores in order to detect some form of deterioration, and also what happens when you put pews in practice. Is there actually a decrease in bad things that happen to small children? So it's both asking how good is pews as a diagnostic tool, but also how good is pews as a management sort of system. Now, what they note from the systematic review is although there were 11 studies, there were 10 different PUSE-style criteria or early warning system criteria. Because of this and the wide heterogeneity that came from that and also the poor quality of some of the studies, a sort of formal meta-analysis was precluded. But most of the studies showed moderate to good discrimination based on the area under the curve measurement. That's a sort of a, a, an add-up of how sensitive and specific something is and shows discrimination between the group of well and unwell. When you looked at the individual components of that, the sensitivities for the different cutoffs ran from around about 75% up to 90% and had reasonably good specificities on this. They were done in an inpatient population setting and the conclusion really from that is that there is evidence that you can use an early warning score to detect people who are going to become unwell much of the time, but not all the time. The seven subsequent papers, the majority of these were cohort studies of some sort, again mainly addressing the accuracy in that diagnostic sense of different Pew scores again. There really is very little head-to-head -head comparison. And of the various scores that can be used, one's called bedside Pews, and that has been subject to a randomised controlled trial, which hopefully stopped recruiting, but hasn't yet reported. The was a large cohort study looking the pre and post implementation of a PUS type system and this showed a decrease in sort of urgent peri-arrest or urgent review style calls and reduced collapses which is a marker for improving the safety of children on the ward in an inpatient setting. What the authors comment is that whilst we seem to have a range of systems that can work and some evidence that they make a difference to general inpatients. We don't always know whether this is going to work in other settings, for example, in an emergency department or in a more specialist type of ward setting. 
And so there's still some work that needs to be done. And we really do need to know the results to large trials to show if implementing the Pew system itself or is it just being more aware of children deteriorating on the ward and not the system itself that makes a difference that will bring about improvements for little people and reduce the number of on-ward cardiac arrests or on-ward urgent deteriorations that need intensive care. The next clinical question, well, you'd struggle to get something more different, really. Joanna Kiss van Holt from the VU Medical Centre in Amsterdam asks a question based from a trip to clinic where the mum of Mario, who's a very obese eight-year-old, comes in and asks you about how to change his behaviour. Because he drinks a litre or more of sweetened fizzy beverages every day. And she's heard that if you stop drinking fizzy pop and start drinking water, that might help a bit with your weight. And asks, are there any strategies to get him to change from drinking fizzy stuff to drinking water? This, being a widespread public health problem, triggers the team to go away and look in great detail to see what they can bring back. And they perform a review search that is worthy of a systematic review. They analyse the quality of the incoming papers using the effective public health programme way of looking at quality of interventions. And this is a, a, a risk of bias tool, really, that's adapted for the sort of interventions that you do across populations rather than the more usual sort of thing that we see where we're looking at trials of individuals. What they found when they drew all this together was that there were six studies that had looked at children and water intake and they were all based around interventions to be done in schools rather than interventions to be done at home or done in a clinical setting. They were of moderate or low quality so not really strong evidence and they all did something slightly different. They were based really around the ideas of allowing children to access water more freely and sometimes combining that with education specifically around the choice of drinks, what to drink and what not to drink, and also the idea that increasing fluid intake in children is a good thing. The size of these trials was also widely varied. One, a trial of about 100 kids, up to a trial across 32 different schools with over 2,900 children in them. Essentially, what they showed was that if you combine education sessions around drinks and diet and fluid intake with the free access of water during the whole school day, including in class, then you do get an increase in the amount of water drunk. But it's small. The average is only touching around one glass of water a day. And it doesn't really seem to have any effect that they could notice on weight change or on major health benefits. It's a difficult thing to take away a message into clinical practice from this. We as paediatricians should probably help and promote our schools to put in good education and to allow access to water throughout the day in primary schools and higher up. But whether that's going to make a great deal of difference to obesity is an unanswered question and certainly one that the team and that the evidence at large can't really help us with yet. To top off this month of rather different and disparate things, the critical appraisal note really gets us thinking about how to detect things where the gold standard isn't particularly amazing. And the thing that triggered this was thinking about blood cultures and serious infection. We know, for example, that serious infection in children we tend to diagnose because either 
they look poorly and they have a blood or a urine or a CSF culture that grows a nasty bug that actually fits that picture and seems to be the infecting organism. But we're also aware that not all of bugs that cause problems are easily grown in such culture bottles. And so how do we evaluate a new technology such as polymerase chain reaction PCR based bug detection things? How do we compare those what with with what? What is the gold standard in this case? If we're comparing, say, just looking at septicemia with blood cultures, then what we can think of is the usual four squares of the diagnostic table. There are true positives, those with PCR and blood culture positivity, so they're real infections. And then there's those where the blood culture grew something and the PCR test showed nothing. We believe those to be false negatives. Then there's true negatives, the ones where the PCR test and the blood culture are both negative. They're the children that aren't actually infected. But then there is another group where the blood culture is negative, but the PCR is positive. That group might be a real false positives. That is that the PCR test failed and came back with something that wasn't there. B, contaminants. There was a bug in the tested sample that the PCR did, but not in the actual patient. C, they really could be culture negative infections. That is, there were bugs in the patient that were big enough in terms of growth and numbers and nastiness to cause an infection, but weren't grown in the cultures. Or D, there were bugs there, but at such a low level, they were never really going to give an infection. They're sort of an overdiagnosis. If you want to look more about overdiagnosis in this setting, it's worth looking up about the issue of more pulmonary embolisms being diagnosed with improved quality of T scans, but no real change in the number of people dying. So we're probably detecting things that don't need to be detected. The fifth one would be that what we're picking up are actually dead bugs. The PCR test can't tell the difference between stuff that's growing and alive and causing problems and stuff that was there and has now all been killed off by the immune system or by antibiotics. So what can we do if we hit an issue like this where the gold standard isn't really that gold? Well, if we're academics and researchers, we can get really excited, plan a series of really complex experiments to disentangle these elements. We can bring in real statistical concepts and think about multiple markers of infection and latent class analysis, and then, then think about how we can go on and do really big randomized control trials. But that doesn't help us as clinicians. As clinicians, we have to sit there and we can weep softly into our generic chain store coffee because the WIT shop had been closed down for years. And we can refuse to believe anything that these damned academics do. And instead, we can just ignore the whole PCR-based malarkey and go on with what we have been doing. Looking at the patient, using the blood cultures to guide us and treating them, the patient, the family as individuals and just doing the best we can. Well, that's the Archimedes for this month. We are hoping that you have enjoyed listening to it. Please do get in touch on the Twitter feed, which is at ADC underscore BMJ. 
drop us a line and let us know how you're finding things. Maybe even submit an Archimedes. The instructions are on the site. Until next month, goodbye.